Hello, my name is Philip Miriton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, today I'm happy to say that as a guest, we have one of the world's most original and cutting-edge thinkers, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, the author of the classic book, Morphic Residence, which was originally named, by the way, A New Science of Life. He's also the author of a new book uh, called, in this country, Science Set Free, and in the UK, the book is called uh, The Science Delusion. Now, before uh, further introducing Dr. Sheldrake, I'd like to mention that a little later in the show... We'll, tr we'll try to round things off a bit by speaking with Anthony Flesh, the founder of Life Tools Workshop in Sedonia, Arizona. Now, the title of today's show is The Science Delusion. We are living in a unique era. Never have so many people from such a vast range of disciplines openly talked about the big questions. And in the course of that questioning, and here's the important part, directed their attention against both religion and science. We are accustomed to thinking of science as the most authoritative discipline. Where religion depends upon revelation, holy scripture, and faith, science is viewed as the open-minded search for truth. Using the heralded scientific method, we view science as seeking truth in an unbiased, objective manner. But the secret is out that science is based upon a model known as materialism, that is showing serious signs of cracking and, in fact, toppling over. This model, as we discussed in the past, I like to think is based upon three principles. It's based upon reductionism, which is that the big particles can be reduced to small particles, that matter is the ultimate reality, as shown, perhaps uh, metaphorically at least, in the search for the God particle or the Higgs boson, and then also materialism separates mind or the internal experience from matter. We have no way, for example, in materialism of explaining such things as, as the placebo effect or the paranormal. But more and more people are noting that materialism is raising a host of unanswered difficult questions and it's time to take a new approach to the problem. Now, as I said, one of the leading thinkers in exposing the flaws in our current mechanistic, materialistic worldview and devising alternative approaches is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, our guest today. Now, Dr. Sheldrake is the former research fellow of the Royal Society and former director of studies in biochemistry and cell biology at Clare College in Cambridge University. He is the author of more than 80 technical papers and articles appearing in peer-reviewed scientific journals, as well as about 11 books, including The Presence of the Past, The Rebirth of Nature, Morphic Resonance, and, and as I said, his new book, Science Set Free. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sheldrake. Good to be with you. Well, well let's, let's start off by um, talking about what you view as the delusion of science. Now, I know in the UK, your book is called The Science Delusion. In this book, the same, I'm sorry, in this country, the same book is Science Set Free. But you you talk a lot about the science delusion, which may, I, I would think, may, may be a play off of a Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, I, I, I would guess. But, mm. but, but what, what is the delusion of science in your mind? I think the science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle leaving any of the details to be filled in. And that's a very common kind of assumption. Most people think we've basically got it all figured out. And um, it leads to a worldview that leaves no space for any deep mystery, and certainly none for God. Um, and um, it's the kind of belief system that people, um, many people, um, sort of unthinkingly adopt, people who've made science into a kind of religion especially. 
Yeah, so that and I think that's one of the things you do so nicely in your new book is is that in looking at scientific materialism, it has a lot of the same hallmarks of other belief systems. And it, and in fact, what do you think it is the difference? Is there a difference between the belief system of materialism and the belief system of what we call religion? Well, I suppose one of the differences is that people who have relief, religious beliefs are aware that they have religious beliefs based on faith. But most materialists who have materialist beliefs are not aware that they have beliefs. They simply think they know the truth. And that means that it's a, a, a belief system that most people are simply not aware is a belief system. They just think they're right and everyone else is wrong. And there's no question about it because this belief system is backed up with the entire authority and success of science. And I think the main reason most people believe it is not because it's intrinsically very plausible, but because jet planes work and the Internet's very impressive and computers work and that kind of thing. People think, uh, well, the, the science, science must be right because all these things work. And so it's not really deeply discussed. In fact, it's hardly discussed at all. And um, so I think that's the main difference. It's simply taken for granted by a lot of its uh, followers. Yes, and, and I think that that's something that people forget a lot. If, if this was maybe three, four hundred years ago, the, the, the worldview was a lot different during the Enlightenment and, and, and during the great era of philosophy in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. You know, materialism itself didn't really take a hold probably until the time of Newton. And up to that point, you know, it's pretty clear that modern culture was much more religion. I mean, I'm sorry, religious, much more orthodox religion. But materialism itself, people forget, is actually a philosophy. And it's, it's simply a way of thinking. And the problem that I think we're having, and I completely agree with you, that, that people tend to assume that it is the final truth, that this is the only way you can look at the world and be scientific. And, and that, I think, is, is really damaging. Now, now for your own, from your own experience, you, you were trained, educated within the materialistic paradigm. Isn't that, isn't that correct? Yes, very much so. Yes. So, so what was what was your break? What what led you to start thinking differently about the problems of biology, for example? Well, I think there were two things. The first was that when I was very very keen on science when I was at school and when I was quite young, and I knew I wanted to be a scientist, and I finished my school at seventeen. I got a scholarship to Cambridge. I had nine months between school and Cambridge. Because I was so seen on, keen on science, I got a job as a research technician working in a laboratory. Um, I applied to various pharmaceutical companies, and I got a job in a pharmaceutical company in London. Um, and when I arrived to take up the job, I discovered I was the most junior technician in a vivisection facility. Um, now, I'd gone into biology because I loved animals. I kept pets and stuff. And here I was in this kind of death camp for animals. Um, and that really made me think, you know, is this what I really want to do? And why are we doing this? And when I asked my colleagues, they said, oh, well, you know, these animals don't have feelings, you know, basically. And in any case, it's all for the good of humanity. And you're not meant to have emotions. This is just objective science and so on. Um, and I just felt there's something horribly alienating about this. And um, I wanted to find out what it was. And when I was an undergraduate, I did very well at Cambridge, but... It made me think, and I just wanted to step back and see what was going on. So I, that's when I went to Harvard and did history and philosophy of science. And that gave me a much bigger perspective. And I saw that materialism isn't an ultimate truth. It's a paradigm, a model of reality. Then, uh, when I was doing research after Harvard, I went back to Cambridge on uh, developmental biology. I came to the conclusion that trying to explain it in molecular terms simply won't work. I mean, I was right at the forefront of um, understanding morphogenesis in molecular biological terms. I was a molecular biologist. Um, and I thought that was great, and we found out a huge amount. And I just realized in the end it won't work. In a plant, for example, in a rose, all the 
petals and the sepals and the stem and the leaves and the roots have exactly the same genes. Many of them have the same proteins. And you simply couldn't explain the shape of the leaves and the petals just in terms of the genes and the proteins they make. So I got interested in the theory called morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields, uh, which is a mainstream concept in biology. But that led me into thinking about the nature of fields and a completely different approach to biological form. So I really got it, started questioning the standard assumptions from problems in the heart of biology. I I see. Well, the the morphic fields, and I think that, it, first of all, it sounds like a mouthful, the morphic resonance. And I think it's important, though, to talk a little bit about it, because what what strikes me about the the theory and the uh, the ideas in your in your book of that title morphic resonance is is the notion of a field and and from modern science we know that there are so many different fields it's hard to add them all up and and every time i think of science's fields i'm reminded of a passage in leon letterman's book uh, the god particle where he says something like uh, modern science fields outer fills outer space with so many particles and fields it's a mystery that you could even see the stars at night and, and so the concept of a field uh, maybe beginning with Faraday and the electrical field it's uh, and now we have quantum fields and we have an inflaton field and we have the Higgs field the concept of a field is not unusual for science particularly in the in the age of the quantum and entanglement and so so it seems to me, folks, that we necessarily have to have a field, and we can call it a field of consciousness, a mind field. There's all sorts of different ways to put it. But, but it seems to me, doctor, that there has to be a field that, that, that uh, extends throughout at least uh, life, and, and if not the universe. And, and so is that your thinking, that there has to be a field? Well, I mean, there are, as you say, already many fields within science that um, some of them, like the gravitational field, right. not only extend throughout the universe, but encompass the entire universe. And they are. The gravitational field is space-time, according to Einstein. Everything's within it. Um, so, yes, I think that fields are a key part of modern science, but in biology, um, it's sort of lagged behind, and the materialistic conceptions... Um, that are so strong in biology have rather left out fields. But when you take them into account, then biology looks very different. Um, fields of development in, 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 in biology and fields of the mind. I, I think um, the, the key part of my own um, hypothesis, which makes it controversial and radical, is that not only that there are fields, that's relatively uncontroversial, um, but that these fields have a kind of inherent memory. They evolve. Um, most of physics is based on the idea that the laws of nature are fixed. This is one of the ten uh, assumptions of science or dogmas, the laws of nature are fixed. They were exactly the same at the moment of the Big Bang um, as they are today, and they'll be the same forever. It's radically non-evolutionary. Um, whereas what I'm saying is that in an evolutionary universe, which is what we live in, um, the fields of nature themselves evolve, and they evolve because they have a kind of memory. And that's what uh, the process of called morphic resonance, the, 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 my book Morphic Resonance is about. Um, this kind of inherent memory in nature, um, which means that uh, living organisms inherit a kind of collective memory of their ancestors as well as genes. Of course, they have genes, but they have this too. Um, and genes are grossly overrated, I think. And that's another of the assumptions of science, that heredity is all explicable in material terms. I don't think it is. Morphic resonance is a major part of it. So um, I think that the assumption that everything's fixed, the, the, the basic uh, carryover from the old worldview into modern evolutionary physics is one of the dogmas we have to challenge. And um, I think this principle of memory within fields is, um, provides uh, my own hypothesis as to how this can be challenged and what could replace the kind of timeless law assumption. And once again, this is Philip Mirton, and we're talking with world-renowned scientist Rupert Sheldrake about the science delusion here on Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. 
as we start uh, delving into the topic of morphic fields and how they relate to the scientific fields in quantum theory. What's an example of the, a pattern in nature that you've used in the past? I know there's a, I know you have a lot of them, and you've studied these. What? what... Oh yes. Well, well, I mean the tree. Just think of a, a, a an oak tree. That's a pattern in nature. The tree, the leaves have a particular shape. Each leaf slightly different from the others, but they have a recognizable oak leaf shape. And the whole tree has a shape. Um, that's a pattern in nature. A monarch butterfly, that's another pattern in nature. We recognize the form of the monarch butterfly. Um, the, a copper sulfate crystal, that's another pattern in nature. A snowflake. Uh, so almost everything, in fact, uh, has a kind of patterning uh, in nature. I mean, every atom, every crystal, every molecule, or molecules are forms. That's why chemists can represent a molecule with a structural formula or with a ball and stick model. A, a molecule is a form of arrangement of atoms in, in space, a spatial form. And as you say, though, the radical part of your hypothesis is that there is a memory in the field. And so, for example, I think, I think you give an, I think you give, uh, an example in morphic resonance of a rat learning to run a maze and and it, and and so and when and when some and when one organism learns something somehow it makes other forms other organisms uh, adopt the same pattern or learn the same pattern faster. That's it. Yes. Right. right. If if rats learn a new trick in one place like Harvard, then rats all over the world of the same breed right. would learn the same trick quicker. Right. That is one of the predictions of the theory of morphic resonance, and indeed there's evidence, surprisingly enough, that supports that from uh, uh, experiments on animal behavior, including rats. Right, and I think that's that is the that is the exciting, groundbreaking part of 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 morphic resonance. And it, when you when I was reading that part. Of, of your book, it reminded me of, and I don't know whether you've done this, but it reminded me of the language instinct, which which is the which is sort of the same thing, where somehow uh, children they they learn languages a lot faster than if they had to learn it from the beginning. It's it's as if as if um, there is some kind of memory in consciousness about a language, and so so it carries over two generations. It just reminded me of this sort of the same phenomena, where yes. where there is something there is something memorized. There's some uh, there's something that that carries through. Uh, the living world and maybe the the natural world and the universe and again what I think is so is so um, sort of groundbreaking about this is that this is really not unusual it should not be considered unusual if there is a ground of being if if the Eastern uh, mystics were correct if if quantum theory is correct, if the idealist philosophers are correct, this this it would seem radical if only if you are embedded in a materialistic mindset. Right. Yes, I agree. I, I mean, after all, in Eastern philosophies, um, Hinduism and Buddhism, um, the idea of a kind of memory in nature is just standard. It's a standard assumption. You know, the doctrine of karma right. is one form it takes. Um, but I saw this very strongly when I was um, developing these ideas in Cambridge. Many people find them, find them very unfamiliar. When I went to India and told people about them, most Hindus I spoke to just said, oh, there's nothing new in this idea, they said. You know, ancient rishis have said this thousands of years ago. Yeah. Um, they, they just took it for granted that there's some kind of memory in nature. Um, so it's not that surprising, really. Uh, it's only surprising in the light of the materialist dogmas, uh, which were built into science in, in the mechanistic form in the 17th century. And um, so I think we've been limited by these dogmas, and our thinking's been shaped by them far too much, and that restricts science. And indeed, that's, of course, one of the main points of my book, uh, The Science Delusion, Science Set Free. Yes, and and the the morphic resonance and this memory in the the field, I think, 
needs to be contrasted with the genetic approach to human organ or to organisms and I and you and you do a really good job you know in your book and I think Bruce Lipton does the same thing talking about the the human genome project where you know all the little microchips to the human body were supposed to be unveiled and once we understood uh, the correlation between a microchip gene and and part of the physical body we could just go in there and replace the defective gene and and lo and behold we would cure all ailments cure all diseases make people tall fast strong whatever and and the human genome project hasn't exactly been a, a resounding success in that in that way is that is that correct no it hasn't it's been a, a massive disappointment to many of the people who pinned their hopes on it and um, the hype was huge and you know, you might say hype is harmless, but it's not harmless really in the sense that it's cost a lot. Um, there were literally hundreds of billions of dollars invested in genomics, biotechnologies, and so forth. And hundreds of startup companies with initial public offerings and vast amounts of money were invested. And as a recent report by the Harvard Business School shows, uh, very, very few of these companies ever made a profit at all. Uh, it's one of the biggest money-wasting schemes ever devised, is, is one of the opinions of, of one of the economists who looked into it all. Um, it's simply been a, a, a wild goose chase, and uh, we found out something, and it's, and it's useful to have this genomic information, but it's, it, the, the genes were so grossly overrated in the first place that the expectations were completely unrealistic. And so there's been a huge amount of investment uh, that's been completely wasted. And if it had been spent in, in other ways, might have been much more productive. But the, So these ideas, this, this kind of ideology, this belief system, isn't just some kind of harmless idea people entertain in their spare time. It actually shapes the political and um, economic realities within which scientific research is done. Yes, and I, I, I think that that is a fantastic example because one of the things we try to do on this show is to bring the big questions down to earth. We all like to have these sort of, uh, at least I do, these sort of cocktail hour conversations about the big questions and then you go back to your normal life, but we don't realize that, these, that, that the way science, materialistic science, has answered these big questions have a direct impact upon our lives. And... And the whole bioengineering industry, the whole uh, human genome project is a really good example because billions of dollars have been spent, you know, unlocking the, the genetic dictionary to the, to the human body in the hope that, as I said earlier, we can cure all diseases, make people uh, big, fast, and strong. And it doesn't pan out. I think one of the most humorous parts of all this is, and I... I and you put in your book where there's it was 23,000 genes that they found in the in the human body, and there's 38,000 in rice. <laughs> I thought that was that, that to me. If if that doesn't say there's something wrong with correlating intelligence or development with genes, I don't know what does because because why we would have less uh, gene or fewer genes than than rice uh, is a little a little unclear to me. <laughs> And sea urchins too. Yeah. Okay. There you have it. It's, well, how, okay. How many? How many genes approximately are in sea urchins? About twenty-eight thousand. Okay. There you have it. So, mm. so we are way below sea urchins in in mm. gene development. So, mm. so the beauty of this is that, and I I actually think this is a really good thing because it shows that we're not limited by our genes, right? I mean, it shows that's that's among other things, and and you know the two of us. Uh, you spent a lot of time reading, and you've actually spent some time with Richard Dawkins. But you know, Richard Dawkins, and that and that book that he had in the seventies or eighties, the Selfish Gene, sort of put into this our modern mindset that we are nothing but genetic machines. Sur I, I remember him, and I and I used the term myself in my own book. You know, survival robots, survival machines who only it's survival machines, right? Yes. Right, right, right. Who only exist to propagate their genes, as if as if we all as if we're computers with microchips, uh, or, or or we're not even a computer. We're just a bunch of microchips randomly clicking away, trying to live for the next day. Uh, and it really it really is a pretty desperate 
depressing view of of life and that is why i think your your approach and i'm not just saying this 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 has got to be the way to go in this direction because not only is is it more explanatory and we haven't even talked about the paranormal yet or the placebo effect but it is much more inspiring i think that's something else that we can't forget about well, I'm, I'm glad you think so. I certainly think that. And um, I mean, of course, some people say it doesn't matter if the scientific view, the regular view is depressing because it's true. The trouble is it's not true. Right. It's depressing and untrue, which makes it a pretty um, bad thing to believe in, I think. Okay. I mean, it's okay as a hypothesis and so forth, but as a belief system, I think it's a disaster. Right, right. And I, I think that is one of the great intellectual mistakes of our time. And there's, a, there's a couple of them, but, but one of them is to sort of throw the towel in on materialism, at materialism. Say, okay, you guys have figured it out. We, we are nothing but robot vehicles. Uh, there is no hope. Uh, we live in a random universe. We have no control over where, of who we are, where nature is going. Uh, we're, just a, we're just a lucky outcome uh, in a multiverse setting uh, on this, on this uh, unforgiving the rock circulating or, or or circling the sun called the planet Earth. It's a very it's a very depressing standpoint. You know, you you uh, quote that one. I forget who said it. Something like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I always mm. put that. I I switch that around, Doctor. I say, well, if materialism says that all all we are, are robot vehicles, I want the evidence for that. And, and well, exactly. I take the same view. I think they're the people who are making the extraordinary claims right. and without the extraordinary evidence. Most of these assumptions, the ten dogmas of materialism that I deal with in my books, I set free, um, are not supported by evidence at all. They're right. simply assumptions or habits of thought that got built into science centuries ago. Um, and now people assume it must be true. But um, as I show, if you look, say, where's the evidence? Um, they don't have any evidence, or very little. Right, right. And and it's important. And, and we're we're running at the at the end here. And I I just want to to, to point out that number one, pick up Dr. Sheldrake's book, uh, Science Set Free. But there is a number of other assumptions that you expose in your book, and I think two that are that are really front and center that come up all the time are, are the paranormal and the placebo effect. And and I think it's interesting. You 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 you've been a student of the paranormal. Is that is that right? Yes, although I don't call it the paranormal. Okay. Um I've studied things like telepathy in um, dogs and cats and people and other animals. Um I think that my view, you see, would be the paranormal means beyond normal. Right. But um, it's actually normal. I think the, these telepathy and, and some other psychic phenomena are perfectly normal and very common. The sense of being stared at is one of the things I studied. Um, and that, uh, you know, more than 90% of people have had that feeling they're being watched from behind. They turn around, someone's watching them. Or they make others turn by looking at them. Um, about 50% of dogs uh, anticipate the arrival of their owners and go and wait at a door or window. And I've shown that at least in some cases, and probably many, um, this is not just a matter of routine or familiar car sounds or people at home giving them clues. It seems to be telepathic. It depends on picking up their owners' intentions at a distance. And again, that's not paranormal, it's normal. Ordinary dogs do it all the time. Millions of dogs are doing it all over America every day. Um, and then telephone telepathy, which is what I call the phenomenon where you think of someone who then calls. Um, you, they, they, you think of them, they call, then you say, it's funny, I was just thinking about you. Um, that is terribly common. About 80% of people have had that experience. I've shown through um, experiments um, that it's not just a matter of chance, it's not just a matter of coincidence, it's not just a matter of lucky guesses. Um, it's a real phenomenon, and indeed, as anyone can see who looks at uh, my website, um, it's something that uh, anyone can try for themselves. I have an automated experiment uh, running there, which anyone can take part in. So I think these phenomena are not paranormal but normal. They're not supernatural but natural. 
and they're part of the way that members, bonded members of animal groups communicate with each other. I think dogs and cats are better at these things than people. Um, but we have these abilities because it's part of the nature of being a social animal to have these abilities. So I think that uh, you know, by branding them, as so-called skeptics have done, by branding them paranormal um, and classifying them along with sort of vampires and UFOs <laughs> and that kind of thing, yeah. um, they've, they've somehow excluded them from, from the field of science, uh, tried to relegate them to the, uh, brand them as sort of fake or superstitious or something, um, and excluded them from rational investigation. I myself think that they're part of science. They're things that you can investigate rationally. I've done lots of experiments on these things. You can do perfectly normal statistical experiments. And my results are all published in peer-reviewed journals. So you can do perfectly normal, regular science with these things, um, following normal scientific procedures. Um, There's nothing unscientific about them or in, in researching them. What is deeply unscientific is the dogmatic assumption that they don't exist, uh, the assumption that many skeptics and materialists have. I think that's profoundly unscientific because it denies phenomena that seem to occur and excludes evidence that goes against these dogmatic beliefs. And all of these are things which I think inhibit science terribly. They're not pro-science, they're anti-science. And this is Philip Mirton. We're on Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking to one of the world's most original thinkers, Rupert Sheldrake, on the topic of why the paranormal is really normal. Stay tuned. At the end of the show, we'll be talking to Anthony Flesh of Life Tools in Sedonia, Arizona. And and there's nothing, There's it's, it's to me impossible to argue with the point that science can't advance if they ignore the evidence. You, you, you point out in your book, and we've all seen it from such people as Michael Shermer, Steven Weinberg, Richard Dawkins, the materialistic um, hardcore folks, that they simply don't want to consider the evidence. They, they've already concluded that such things as psychic phenomena does not exist, and therefore... Uh, reasoning in reverse, they conclude it cannot exist. Now, now one of the things that I point out here is that I also, I also uh, am a lawyer, and for a lawyer investigating a case to ignore the facts, we would call that malpractice. If you ignore the yes. facts, if you ignore the facts, if you decide that, uh, you know, that O.J. Simpson did not commit the murder. Uh, a, a while ago, and you ignore any fact that shows that he really did it, you, that would be called malpractice. You're supposed to use the facts to devise your theory. And, and, so, and so that brings us to this point here, which is where do you think the scientific world is going on this whole thing here. You've been doing this for 30 for 30 plus years and you know you were one of the four the forerunners in this whole area which is coming up with scientific support for a new way of looking at things. Where do you see this heading, doctor? Well, I wish I knew. I've thought for 30 years that it might change soon and it hasn't changed that much. But I do think at the moment uh, we're in a period where the old dogmatism is breaking down. I mean, I've, I've always thought of people like Richard Dawkins, you know, give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves. Yeah. And I think that's what's happening. I think it's becoming obvious to many people that we're dealing here with a kind of fanatical belief system, not with rational science. And um, I think that the sheer cost of modern science and the fact that it's obeying the law of diminishing returns is an important factor too in physics. Uh, the whole thing is, is sort of reality has been dissolved into a kind of virtual froth. Yeah. You know, multiple universes, dark matter and dark energy for which there's no independent evidence, and, uh, you know, multiple dimensions and so forth. All very fine is theoretical speculations, but not hard science. Um, most of it without evidence. Um, and not really very productive. I mean, it produces lots of scientific papers and theoretical speculation, but that's it, for, for, I'm afraid, for a lot of this theoretical physics. And within biology, 
the breakdown of the genome project and and the um, in in it's collapsed into what's now called the missing heritability problem, where it's become clear that uh, these genes simply don't explain um, large aspects of inheritance. Um, I think the failures of science, it, in some uh, and the rising cost of it, um, together with the economic crunch and the fact that. In the economic and political and financial spheres, people realize that the old paradigm, the old model, is simply not working anymore. Um, I think we'll make more people receptive to the idea that we need a change in science. And my own experience is that many um, scientists, both senior and junior, uh, are aware of these problems. It's just that they don't dare talk about it within their scientific institutions. But just yesterday, I had spent the afternoon with one of America's top scientists. I mean, he's head of a major lab in one of the major institutions, uh, universities. Um, uh, you know, a very eminent figure, um, editorial boards of top journals. He's a friend of mine and talks quite freely to me and uh, would agree with much of what we've been talking about today. But he said to me, um, you know, I said to him, how much can you discuss this sort of thing with your colleagues? And he said, the only person I can discuss these kinds of questions with in my institution is myself. <laughs> and, yeah, and, that's not good. And, um, I, but actually, I think within science, there are many people who realize it has to change. And one of my models for change is based on the gay liberation movement. <laughs> you know, if people, if scientists came out and uh, were able to talk to their colleagues about the fact they, you know, their doubts, their need for an alternative, um, and a broader view. I think science would look quite different. I think the Dawkinsites and um, and the Shermerites are uh, are actually quite a small minority now within science, but they pretend they're the majority, and the press and the media uh, believe them and make it sound as if they speak for the majority. But I don't think they do. And, um, in fact, a recent survey of top American universities showed that um, about 55% of people there had religious faith or spiritual practices. They were spiritual but not religious, many of them. But over 50 over 50% um, didn't believe in a materialist worldview, thought there was more. But they also asked these people, do you think most of your colleagues uh, uh, would be sympathetic to your point of view? And most of them thought that Almost all their colleagues were materialist atheists, whereas in fact they weren't. Yeah. Only a minority were. Yeah. So I think there's a misperception in the public media and within science itself, which keeps people in, in prison in their own thinking and their own freedom of thought and their own freedom of discussion, because they imagine everybody else believes this stuff. Actually, I think an increasing number don't believe it, and probably a majority by now within many branches of science. So it's really a, partly a social movement that would change things. And as I show in Science Set Free, if we question these dogmas, if we think more freely, if we allow ourselves to explore alternative approaches, um, science itself will be regenerated. All sorts of new experiments become possible, all sorts of new discoveries. Science will, I think, undergo a kind of renaissance. And at the moment, it's just being held back. Um, so I'm actually quite optimistic. The only thing is I don't know how long this will take. Yeah, the, I, I, I cannot agree more with, 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 with that, and that's really what my own book is about and what, and what really the purpose of this show is. And uh, I just have a couple observations. One of them is is that in Dawkins' newest book, uh, The Magic of Reality, I believe it's called. He might have another one by now, but in the, but in the magic of reality, he makes an admission at the end of that book that he doesn't know anything about quantum theory, and I or cosmology, which means he's never much had the pleasure of of thinking about the multiverse. And if you don't read about quantum theory, then then you're sort of mix missing a bridge here, a scientific bridge between consciousness and the physical world. So so that to me was was pretty amazing that he made that he made that concession. The other thing is that what I think part of the problem is is that the materialistic scientists or or just put it differently, the mainstream science thinks in my opinion that they can't give in on any of this stuff because it's tantamount to becoming a creationist or an intelligent designer. 
and, and they haven't thought that maybe there is a third way of looking at things. It's like you point out, and I, and I think it's a really good way to put it, sort of freeing up science inquiry. You basically look at the evidence, you come up with a different way of looking at things that it, that's going to involve a field, a one mind, consciousness, whatever, whatever term sounds scientific to you, uh, and proceed by looking at the evidence and coming up with a different, more promising, more all-encompassing worldview. And, and that that and in fact and in fact my own thinking is that when when you do that now you start finding a way to explain religion too. Now we don't have enough time to go there, but 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 to me it's always been one of the obvious flaws of science where their theory of everything leaves out uh, religion, psychic phenomena, the placebo effect, all these things that we know exist. Uh, so it can't be a yes. theory. It can't be no, a theory of everything. Completely agree. Completely agree, Philip. It, can't, it, it can't be a theory of everything. So I'd like to thank you for your time. We left a lot of ground uncovered, uh, but, but we, did, we did hit a lot of issues. I, I want to, again, recommend Dr. Sheldrake's uh, new book, Science Set Free. Uh, also, his book, Morphic um, Residence, it was originally published as a new science of life in the 80s and at the time was very controversial and today is also I would think controversial but not as much so both of these books uh, for anybody that is interested in sort of seeing some of the flaws of, ma of mechanistic materialistic science and other ways to view phenomena you should really pick up those books um, I like to uh, just again thank you for your time uh, doctor it's been it's been um, a really a, a good a good discussion I, I just want to add at the end here that uh, materialism looks as if it is going going out um, the back door here it I think we are at the stage where we're going to see this this way of thinking topple over and again I have to point to your to your to your book again the other problem of course is that is that they control the textbooks the grants the professorships they, they are the peers doing the peer review right mm. so 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 it's pretty hard for someone like me who is logical and is conservative uh, or, or even correct as yours truly might be I'm not going to get an article published in Nature magazine or Science Magazine or Scientific American because of the peer review. Uh, but again, Thomas Kuhn in the Structure of Scientific Revolution sort of talked about this, that, over, that eventually there's too many anomalies and the existing way of thinking about things starts falling apart. I do think it's time for a more all-embracing worldview. I have no idea when it's going to happen, but with people like Dr. Sheldrake out there, uh, who's got science behind him and a lot of good research, I think there's there's hope. So once again, thank you for your time, Doctor. Uh, why don't you just mention briefly your, your website and any other comments you want to make, and then we'll close. Oh, yes, well, I, I'll just say the website. My website is uh, sheldrake.org, www.sheldrake, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E, dot org, O-R-G. There's a lot of information there, um, my various scientific papers, articles, um, audios, um, videos, etc., all free. And um, so um, do go there if you want more information. And, um, and I'll just mention again, uh, Philip, that my book, Science Set Free, is called Science Set Free in the, in the U.S., and in the U.K., it's called The Science Delusion. Right, right, and very good. And, and I have the, as I said, I, I have The Science Delusion. I think it's a great title, but, but uh, it reads well, and it puts together this story about what's wrong with science and what we really need to do to get it back on the right track to open up uh, the free inquiry that science was supposed to be all about. This is Philip Merriton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening, and Doctor, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Hello, this is Philip Merton, and as I said at the top of the show, one of the things uh, we like to do sometimes is to feature folks in the new spirituality, consciousness, new science movement, and tell you what what they're doing. Today we're going to, um, happy to 
highlight Anthony Flesh, who's the founder of Life Tools Workshop out of Sedonia, Arizona. Now, Anthony was born in Cape Town, South Africa, where he worked as an advertising executive, musician, actor, writer, hot air balloon crewman, warehouseman, college instructor, and sommelier. He studied at the University of Cape Town, South African Conservatory of Music, and Berkeley College of Music. For the past 20 years, his spiritual practice has drawn from many traditions, Eastern, including Hindu, Taoist, and Buddhist, Western Gnostic, Native American, Native African, and Depth Psychology. He has also been involved with natural healing for many years, including Chinese, Western, and Native herbology, acupuncture, acupressure, homeopathy, and natural diet and supplementation. He helps people actualize their innate magnificence by supporting them in releasing past traumas and by sharing tools which enhance spiritual consciousness in the midst of everyday life. Well, welcome to this segment, Anthony. Thanks very much, Philip. Well, it's, it's, it's good having you because you're out there actually helping people in the real world sort of maybe expand their spiritual horizons. But why don't you talk a little bit about what Life Tools Workshop is? Well, you know, when I first started this, I was, I was, I was skeptical about whether the world really needed another workshop, <coughs> excuse me, another workshop, because uh, as you know, there are lots of them out there. But what's a little different about what we try to do is we, we support people in integrating these spiritual tools uh, and beliefs into every area of life. I mean, I know from my own experience that it's not always so easy to do. You know, often we'll go to an event on a weekend and uh, we'll have what we call a uh, what I call Sunday night syndrome, where you feel really great on a Sunday night, but by Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, you're back into the same patterns that uh, uh, were plaguing you the week before. So what we do is we, we make sure not only that people really understand uh, what we're sharing really well, um, but then they also have a support system uh, for the next 90 days after the workshop, where a peer support system where each member supports another member in uh, and keeps them accountable to the commitment they've made to integrating these tools into their lives. Yeah, now, now how, how do you think it's worked? I mean, how, how is, what's the secret to integration here? Um, well, the secret to, to integrating any, any new practice into your life is, is to just do it. And that's, as you know, uh, that's easier said than done. Right. So that's why we have the mutual support and we have a framework that we give everybody to, to use and, and they commit to a series of calls a number of calls each week uh, with their partner to the, so they can support each other. And it's really a matter of kind of exercising a new muscle, uh, similar to when you start to work out. You know, you, it doesn't come naturally in the beginning, but, uh, but after a while, um, if you don't work out, you miss a workout, you really miss it. So the same thing with integrating these tools into one's life. You know, the more you do it, the easier it gets. Exactly. That's really good because I, I think you're exactly right. There's so many. It's not just in the spiritual area, but it's workshops generally, business workshops, whether it's time management or efficiency or, or training or coaching. Unless you, unless you implement those practices into, into your daily life, they're, they're not likely to catch on. So I, exactly. I think, that, I think, that's, I think that's, uh, that sounds like a really good approach. Now, what, what led you to get into this line of work? Well, um, I, you know, I have been on a conscious spiritual path for a long time, and at the time when I started the, uh, Life Tools, I was working in the advertising industry, and while I enjoyed it, I didn't feel that it was, it was creating a lot of meaning in my life. I wanted to be more in service, and uh, so I, I did a lot of asking you know, of spirit or whatever word you want to use for that presence in our lives or source, um, and saying, you know, what, what, what am I supposed to be doing? What's my purpose? You know, what am I for? which I guess is a question many of us encounter as we get a little older and yeah. we start to question, uh, you know, the meaning, the meaning of life. Right. And uh, the answer I kept getting back, uh, which I found a little frustrating, I can be a little stubborn and resistant to, to, to messages from guidance, <laughs> is uh, uh, the answer I kept getting back was, teach what you're learning. Right. Hmm. And uh, that was kind of an insistent message. And, you know, uh, it'll take more time than we have here to describe the entire process. But uh, essentially, I was guided to, to write down what I, what I knew and to, and to write a format for the workshop and to do a pilot. And uh, it, it just sort of naturally unfolded from there once I was able to uh, 
release some of my resistance to what I was hearing. Yeah, it's it's really amazing how many people that I sp speak to on this show and elsewhere are really answering their life calling. And I think you I think you sort of put your finger on it at least in one way, which is that the older you get, the more you start maybe feeling your oats, and and you start and you start sort of getting uh, sort of in tune with yourself and your uh, to to understand. Uh, what your true purpose is. So I, I think that's I think that's uh, that's that's really interesting. Now, one of the things that I I think is valuable uh, in these kinds of discussions is 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 based upon your experience. What kind of messages or what kind of lessons that uh, which Life Tools has has have best resonated with your clients? What, what's working? Well, I here? think the one, the one, the one message. Uh, and, and there are a few. There are quite a few uh, moments in the workshop where people will tend to get inspired or have sort of aha insights. Um, but the one that's that to me is the most important, and 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 can I've seen people's thinking shift in this regard is the idea that we are at cause for all our circumstances. You know that yeah. we're not victims. Right. I mean, you know, this this is something which is not part of our conventional thinking. It's not what we were taught growing up. And so people, it's also the, the thought that people have the most challenge with because, you, they, you know, one of the reactions is, you mean this is all my fault? Yeah. And it's nobody's fault. It's right. just that we are at cause. Yeah. So when you, when you want to see what you're thinking, you know, I say, look, look at your life. Uh, that's a quote from uh, Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh because one of the other things he says in there, the universe is like a great big Xerox machine for your thoughts. So th that, that concept is the one that people seem to, A, most resonate with and be most inspired by and also have the most trouble with. It's the same, it's the same idea that they, that they ha have these two different reactions to. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's become more and more front and center with a lot of teachings of this whole concept of taking responsibility for your own life and I think that's a it's a it's a great message and I think you know Anthony my own view is that we live in a in a victim a victimhood or the blame gain society so in many ways it's exactly opposite what exactly. what 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 we're taught I mean how how often uh, when something goes wrong whether it's uh, Hurricane Sandy or whether it's the um, ambassador uh, murder in, in Libya or, any, or in any, any political or national event, we're always looking around for the blame. And, right. and, and there's always, and you know, I, I don't think there's any more healthy message that you can give that you need to take responsibility. My, my view of that well, is, is that it's better to lead your life as if you were primarily responsible because you never know whether you are or not and so so even if you're exactly. in doubt even if you're in doubt it's more healthy because because to the degree you are the cause you're going to be directing yourself in a more positive way exactly so and you have the ability to then change right if you don't like something you can change it i'm not saying that's easy either right but at least if you have that mindset you you, you come from the place where you you feel empowered to change now, now, what do you what do you think about this whole area? And I I'm always at a loss sometimes what to call this area. I use the word I use a lot of words in the introduction. I use new spirituality, new consciousness. Uh, I try to stay away from new age, although it does describe right. many of these things. But but where do you think this area is heading over the next ten twenty years from what you've seen? Well, my hope is that 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 concepts like this, you know, the the, the new spirituality or um, some some call it spirituality without religion or or uh, universal spirituality is going to be more integrated into our daily lives. That these concepts are going to become a part of who we are and and how we live. Yeah. And I, I see that happening more and more. And and I guess my my goal is to help people, you know, see these concepts as not esoteric or kind of woo woo or new age, but but really, um, part of how the universe works and right. how we can how we can find our place in it and and how we can function more effectively as human beings. And to bring this into into the mainstream, not only of our society but also into the core of our of our daily lives. Because you know, it's, if we live these concepts, uh, we're we're happier, we're better adjusted, we're less stressed. Right. You know, and we use these tools. I mean, for example, meditation. A key, uh, one of the key tools in this area, 
there's tons of research uh, now and in the last uh, 30, 40 years about how meditation um, leads to more creative thinking, it leads to uh, lower incidence of depression, more energy, less stress, etc. So, you know, the benefits of, of many of these tools are not just um, ephemeral, they're, they're real, they can be, can be physical and, 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 and tangible. Yeah, and I think it's, it's very important for most folks to understand that modern science, even though we tend to view it as materialistic in, in nature, which it is, uh, but science itself is moving towards a consciousness component or recognizing, let me put it, maybe that's a better way to put it, recognizing that there is a consciousness component to the physical world. And that is through, that is through the quantum theory, which of course we don't have time to get into, but we've, well, we talk about that a lot in this show. And also, uh, I, I need to say that, that with, with the attention right now on the fine-tuning uh, of, of the universe, which sounds like a big fancy topic, but it is what it is, that there's so many of these constants and variables and, and particle forces and, and weights and measures and everything that are in balance to support life. It really suggests that there is more to the world than just particles in motion. And, and so, so that to me is important because if we're going to have this integration, then the, then the integration has to, I think, penetrate into our modern scientific mindset. And, and I think that is what is happening. It's probably going to take decades, but, but I think it's really healthy to, to know and to believe that this is not just going to be an outlier, that the new spirituality, I think the, the power of it is that it's, it will eventually, in my mind, infiltrate uh, the scientific worldview. And I think that's what's, what's so, so inspiring and, and so promising about this development. So, so one last thing, why don't you tell us a little bit about your workshops and how people can learn more about life tools? Well, it's a two and a half day workshop, a very common in, in, uh, you know, in format to many, many others. Uh, but we do it here in Sedona, Arizona, which is a beautiful place. Now, you talked a little bit about, Phil, about, about this uh, science, you know, and, and uh, spirituality coming together. Sedona is one of these places of power where um, the electromagnetic fields of the so-called vortexes we have here have actually been measured. The, the, there's a lot, there's a quite a bit more electromagnetic magnetic energy in this area, and this seems to be common with many places of power. So a lot of people, especially the Native Americans who did ceremony here for over hundreds of years, feel that this is a place which actually supports people's growth. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's really good. That's so really that's, cool. That's yeah, thing. yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you know, the energy, and if matter, matter and energy are the same, right, you were talking right. about quantum, right. you know, if the energy is m more powerful here, then uh, it's going to have an effect on us. So anyway, we do this here in Sedona. It's, it's, um, it's two and a half days. Um, what's a little different about it also is that we, we, there's an experiential component, a strong experiential component to this workshop. We don't just lecture. We, we, we do a bunch of different processes, uh, including breath work, etc., a lot of visualization, some meditation um, to, that give people the direct experience of some of these tools we're talking about, not just information. And then we, we ask them to share about their experience in, in, in those experiential sections, which leads to uh, a lot of uh, stuff coming up in a good way. I mean, there's a lot of safe spaces created, and there's a lot of kind of, for want of a better word, because it's, an, it's talking about an old form of science, there's a kind of alchemy that happens in the room where people are supported in, in sharing uh, deep stuff that comes up and a lot of healing happens. So it's, I, I, I try to get out of the way of that process as much as possible and get my ego out of the way and, and let that naturally occur. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very inspiring thing when I'm very humbled by and feel very grateful for. No, no it, sound, it sounds great. And so for people to, to learn more about Life Tools, uh, I guess your, your, webs, your website is... is Called Life Tools, right? It's actually uh, Life Tool, lifetool.com okay. okay. without the S. Okay. Lifetool.com. Yeah, and uh, take a look there, and, and of course, I'm always available to answer anybody's questions and have a discussion, you know, without any kind of obligation. And I'm not, not trying to sell anybody anything. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. So, if people are interested, uh, they should just feel free to call me up. We've got a toll-free number. 
and uh, love to talk to people and reach out and, and hear what they have to say. Okay, well, thank you very much, Anthony. It's it's been it's been really good talking to you and learning a little bit about Life Tool Work uh, good Workshop you, in Sedonia. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's and and, and the best of luck to you and and everyone out there. Uh, uh, take a look at Anthony's. Uh, website i think he's doing some different things out there and the whole atmosphere climate environment of of sedonia sounds like the perfect place to do this this is philip Mirton. this is conversations beyond science and religion thank you for listening you've been listening to conversations beyond science and religion with philip Mirton. to find out more about philip and his new book the heaven at the end of science visit heaven at the end of science.com